thank our worship team and for all that they invest on our behalf to lead us into the presence of God. Thank you so much. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. He is our hope. He is our peace. He is our joy. And on this day, we praise you and thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Amen. This morning on this day of resurrection, we realize that we have an enemy. It's death. Death has robbed us all of loved ones, of best friends, of mentors, of lovers, of companions, of children, of our extended families. Sometimes death takes people slowly, as in Alzheimer's or another lingering disease. Or sometimes it takes people quickly through injury or a fast-moving ailment like cancer or heart disease. But either way, it robs us of life, and it's always too soon. And those of us who've lost those who are close to us, we are never the same again. Some of us have held someone close in our arms as they've breathed their last. And some of us were shocked when someone suddenly just passed away. We were just talking to them the other day. Some of us have prayed for recovery for our loved ones, but our prayers ended in death anyway. And some of us have prayed for a quick end to someone's suffering, but death came so slowly. Some of us even feel like we were the cause of someone's death. Sometimes death eases into action. First, we see its effects in the mirror from morning to morning. We lose some strength and our joints feel stiff and we lose a little bit of mobility and we find death seeping into our minds and into our outlook. And it affects the way we see ourselves and we wonder if we still have purpose. And we lose our appetite and our drive for life and then we, we're simply just hanging on to life, not even knowing why we're hanging on. See, death is that great enemy which brings all of us to our knees. One way or the other. And we cannot escape it. See, this is the experience of death that every single one of us walk in one way or the other. And the disciples and Mary Magdalene and all the ladies who were with her on that morning, they were reeling from the actions of that weekend. Not knowing exactly what had taken place. They came to the tomb confused, broken. This little movement of God's kingdom that had started just recently had come to a screeching halt 
in one night, Jesus, who had been so favored by the people, in one night, he'd been arrested, he'd been tried, he had been convicted, and he had been done away with. It happened so quickly. And now, early in the morning after the Sabbath, they came to the tomb to think, is there something we, more we could do for this loved one, this one who has meant so much for us? And Mary Magdalene, she had her own story. We don't know that much about her, but we know that sometime in her life, she was afflicted by seven unclean spirits that controlled her and drove her mad. And at Jesus' words, he brought life to her, delivered her from all that. And her response was then to join a small company of women who traveled with Jesus and the disciples. And because of their gratitude and their love, they supported Jesus and his disciples out of their own finances. They were the backup crew. They made sure that the clothes were washed, that the food was cooked. They made sure that Jesus and his followers could do what they need to do. And she did it out of love. And she did it because there was a purpose behind it. And it all came to that screeching end on that Good Friday. But on that morning when she came to the tomb, with the spices of death to take care of the body so at least the body would rest well. She comes to the tomb and the stone is rolled away. It's open. What is it doing open? And her only assumption is somebody has broken in and has hated Jesus so much that they stole his body and now she cannot even grieve properly. She sees the angels. She can't grasp what has happened. She tells the disciples, they come running. Everybody looks, but nobody comprehends. In fact, it's interesting in John chapter 20 verse 9, it says this, and they did not understand from the scriptures that Jesus had to rise again. There was a lot of not understanding going on right about now. They had heard Jesus say, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Even though you die, you will be alive. But Mary didn't understand. The other women didn't grasp it. The disciples who came running, they could not even fathom what had taken place. There was a lot of misunderstanding going on. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8 tells us that if the powers of the world would have understood God's plan, they would not have crucified the Lord. They didn't even comprehend what was going on. Nobody comprehended. And you know what? Before we judge them too harshly, lots of times we don't even comprehend 
what took place. Even though we have the benefit of hindsight and we look back, sometimes we don't even realize what took place. What the resurrection really is and what it really means and what it means to us. So before we go too far, let's even just talk about the resurrection. It's the term we use a lot. What is it that we are really meaning when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus? Well, first, Jesus was fully dead. Completely dead. Now, for those of you who love the arts of cinema, can think back to the Princess Bride, and Wesley was brought to Miracle Max, and his comments was, well, he's only mostly dead, which means he is slightly alive. Because if he was all dead, the only thing that's left to be done is to go through his pockets for change. <laughs> See, Jesus wasn't slightly dead. He wasn't almost dead. He didn't just swoon and become unconscious. He, wasn't just, he didn't just pass out and after they took him off the cross, they put him in a nice cool grave and he somehow comes back to life. He was dead, dead. Completely dead. As dead as possible. So we believe that Jesus fully died. We believe that his body was buried. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came and they contacted Pilate and they asked for the body of Jesus and he was, they were given the body of Jesus and they took it to the, to the tomb and they buried him. You see, the Romans knew how to kill someone and they knew the signs of full death and Jesus was dead and so they could easily give up the body. So they took up Jesus' body. They put him in Joseph's tomb. And while nobody understood that Jesus was going to rise again, interestingly enough, an interesting comment in the story, and Matthew makes mention of this, that the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate and said, we remember that this rascal said that he was going to rise again. He, they're the only ones who comprehended it. So let's guard the tomb. And so they put a seal on the tomb. They put a guard around it of men to make sure nobody could pull off a con or a hoax. And he was fully dead. He was fully buried. But what we know is this, is that he overcame death. He came back to life. That nobody came along and raised him. In fact, scriptures tell us in some places, makes the emphasis that God raised him from the dead. And in some places it mentions that Jesus raised himself back from the dead. That he didn't just come back to life like Lazarus came back to life because Jesus raised him. Not like the people who came back to life and came around uh, the, the regions of Jerusalem. People who came back to life and then 
died again some other time. But he overcame death. He overpowered it. The, the grip of death was loosened. And he destroyed death. And we understand this, that he physically came back to life. He didn't just spiritually come back to life or symbolically come back to life or emotionally come back to life. He physically came back to life. We're told that over the 40 days after his resurrection, he showed himself to over 500 separate people. And at the time of the writing, many of them were still alive. You could actually go to them and say, did you see him? And they say, I saw him. You could see him. You could talk to him. You could touch him. Everything. He was fully alive. It wasn't just a dream. It wasn't just a vision. He came back to life. So when we talk about the resurrection, this is what we're referring to. Jesus died. He was buried. He overcame death from the power of God within him. And he came back physically and he walked again on this earth, fully human, fully alive. But it's amazing how many people don't believe in the resurrection. In those days, lots of people didn't believe in the resurrection. In fact, there was a group of religious people called the Sadducees, they were very religious. Very devout, following the law of Moses to a T. But they did not believe in the spirit world. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in a lot of that stuff that you cannot see. They were the very practical people. Now that's not all that amazing. Because there's lots of people around who believe in good things but don't believe in things you can't see. But what was amazing is that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we find that within the church that there were people who did not believe. And the very fact that you could be Christian and not believe in the resurrection is astonishing. How can you be Christian and not believe in that. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we find that part of what Paul is writing to is believers who did not believe. <laughs> How ironic. What on earth does that even look like? What does that look like to say, I believe in Jesus, but I don't really trust the resurrection? What does that even look like? Well, let's put it into something that we can easily understand and comprehend. Believing in Jesus but not the resurrection looks like this to us. I believe that when I die, I will live on eternally in spirit form and be in heaven with Jesus forever. Does that sound familiar? It's everywhere. In fact, if I would have asked you to say, who believes that? Chances are many of you would 
say, hey, I, I, I believe that. But that's not the plan of Jesus. That's not why he went to the cross. Believing that I will live on eternally in spirit form is not the resurrection. That's not the destiny for believers. That's not what Jesus came to this earth to give us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 14, as Paul is talking about the resurrection, he says, if we do not believe in the resurrection, he says this in verse 14, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. It's useless, it's pointless. Why even preach? Why even talk about this? If we don't believe that there's more, why are we even talking about this? In verse 15, he says this. More than that, when we, are found, we would be found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. See, the thing about an apostle, and, and the terminology changes at the resurrection, or sometime between the resurrection and Pentecost. See, before they were called the disciples, the followers, the learners, the mentees. But then they became the apostles. And the, the important thing about an apostle is that you were an eyewitness. I saw Jesus in his life. I saw Jesus' miracles in what he did. And I saw Jesus rise from the dead. I saw him afterwards. And that made you uh, capable of being an apostle. But if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and if you don't believe in the resurrection, that means that the apostles are liars. And what they say is not true. And interestingly enough, so many of the apostles, not only did they preach about Jesus, but they put their lives on the line to preach about Jesus and bring the message of the resurrection and of new life. And it would be inconceivable for the apostles to give up their lives willingly for a con. Then it goes on in verse 17 and it says that if Christ is not being raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In fact, if we don't believe in the resurrection, there is no forgiveness. You are still in your sins. You can confess all you want. You can come to God in prayer all you want and say you're sorry all you want. But if there is no resurrection tied to the death of Christ, it does not work. We cannot separate the cross and the tomb. To believe in one is to believe in the other. Without one of them, it doesn't work. In verse 18, he says this. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. In other words, if you're dead, then you're just gone. If we don't believe in the resurrection, it's not the spirit world that we even think of. The thing is, if you're dead, you're gone. You're here, you're gone. Nothing more. In fact, if we don't believe and hold on to and trust in the resurrection, there is no afterlife. 
And then in verse 19 it says this, this, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if you believe in Jesus and says, well, at least Jesus allows me to live a good life. I follow his teachings and I let him shape my morality and therefore I am a Christian because I follow his teachings. Paul is saying, that's pathetic. We are duped. We are pitiful because we're following something and we're sacrificing something and we're holding on to a moral code that makes no difference at all. See, Paul was convinced that the resurrection is key and that we don't just believe in a future of living on forever in eternity in a spirit form, but he believes that we will be raised with Jesus. See, Jesus entered death and he defeated it from the inside. And this is his response to the curse of Adam and Eve. And if you think back to the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, they were cursed. And the curse was this, you will now die. And this curse of death that came upon the human race, because we are their children, we descend from there. So all of their children, genetically, you could say, have that same condition. It's been passed on down to us by our forefathers. And it started with Adam and Eve. In fact, the Bible talks about Adam as being the first Adam. That through him, death came into the human race. And because we all sin, we all die. But it also speaks of Jesus as being that second Adam. Adam, that how death came into the human race through the first Adam, life comes into the human race through the second Adam. How in the second Adam, all become alive, where the first one, we all became dead. And the great thing is that not only did Jesus come alive, but he defeated death. Romans chapter 6 verse 9 tells us this, that since Christ was raised from the dead, he no longer can die. He cannot die again. And death no longer has any control or mastery of it. See, the picture is this, is that death is like a prison door. You put him in and you close the gate and you lock it and you throw away the keys. But what good does that do if someone comes along and busts the hinges? He can go in and out at will. Death has no control over Jesus anymore. See, and this is what we hold on to. Not only that he came alive, but that he defeated death. He defanged it. He robbed it of its power, of its intimidation power in our lives. So that it no longer had control over him. And it no longer has control over those who put their trust in Jesus.
So what is it that the resurrection and believing in the resurrection does for us? I have to admit that sometimes I've wondered, why even, you know, what makes the resurrection so powerful? As, as a young believer, I remember talking to a missionary and saying, I believe in the cross and that my sins are forgiven, but why do we need the resurrection? And I had heard, and maybe you have heard too, lots of times when Jesus was on the cross, he says, it is finished. And it means that everything is finished to pay for my sin. So if it's all finished at the cross, why is the resurrection so important? Is it important? Well, this is what it is. The first thing that the resurrection does for us, and the Bible calls it the great hope of the future. And by the great hope, it's something that we look forward to that we do not yet have. Now, we have new life in Christ. The moment you give your heart to Jesus, you have a new spiritual life that takes place inside you. And that's the beginning of what Jesus intends to do in your life. But it's only the beginning. Because there's something far more. You know, in Romans chapter 8, I love the picture that it paints here. And it talks about how all of creation is groaning as a woman in childbirth. Now I could tell you what childbirth is like. I could tell you how painful it is. But in all honesty, I know nothing about it. Those of you who have given birth, you know what it's like. You know the intensity of it. I've stood by Renee as our children were born, and I held her hand for about 30 seconds until I couldn't hold on anymore. The intensity of it all was too much for me. So not all of us get the picture of the pain and the groaning and what it's like. But we all get the second part. See, that portion of Scripture talks about creation groans like a woman in childbirth, but we all groan, and we go through this life struggling, and every single one of us know that part. This life sometimes does not make a lot of sense. This life always ends badly. Sometimes as we get older, we start giving in to cynicism because life is not what we expected it should be. We see how people treat each other. We see how justice is either done or not done, and it corrodes us from the inside. But the scriptures hold on to The resurrection is our great hope. See, the plan is to go back to plan A. See, at the fall of man, God resorted to plan B, which was we send the Savior. People give their heart to Jesus, and he saves them from their sin. And 
relationship can be restored between humans and God. But plan A, do you remember what plan A was? Back in the garden, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. That was plan A. Where God creates a perfect and pure world. And he takes humans that are pure and he puts them on it. And then he walks in the garden with them. See, this has always been God's plan. It has always been God's desire to have a healthy earth, to have whole human beings, and to live with us in close proximity. For us to be fully human. See, the plan is is that while you may die, in fact, we all die, but maybe some will still be here when Jesus returns. While we all die, we do not stay dead. And this is, you could say, why faith in Jesus becomes a little bit bizarre. Is that because we believe in the resurrection, the great hope is this, is that I will not stay dead. All the hopes, all the dreams that die with me doesn't stay dead. All the ambitions, all the things that I expected to do, the good that I struggled with, it doesn't stay dead. With my death is not the end of my life. The great hope is this, that God will resurrect us and bring us back to life and we'll be just as human, just as real, just as physical as we are now. One great difference, though, the effects of sin will be removed. The aging will be removed. The hair will be returned. You might wonder, well, I can't wait to get my new body. I got news for you. It's the same body you got now. But it's different. Everything that's wrong with your body will be removed. You throw away our glasses, the aches and pains, the energy that drains away, the diseases, the sicknesses, the things I've picked up, the injuries, all will be made right again. And God will do that with the earth too. He will bring the earth through a process that you could call resurrection, making it new again, going back to plan A. And not only will Jesus be walking with us, we'll have the Holy Spirit inside of us, and we will be with God both spiritually and physically. This is the great hope. All the apostles gave their lives to preach this message, that great hope. You will not stay dead. The sin that has touched everything and corrupted everything and ruined everything will be dealt with. (laughs) And we hold on to this hope that he will make all things right. That's what believing in the resurrection does. The second thing it does is it encourages us to persevere. Because I can hold on to something beyond this life. See, when I put my faith in Jesus to make me good in this life and to make this life the best that it can be, then I want to preserve this life. 
It is why the apostles so willingly went to their death. So willingly martyred themselves. While believers all through the centuries have been willing to give up this life. Because I know there's another one coming. And it's far better. That giving up our lives is like making an investment in something later. It's like delayed gratification. I will sacrifice now because I know later it will be better. Because we believe that this life does not end with my death. I believe that I will come back to life and that life will be so much more. Believing in the resurrection allows our grief to be tempered. That when we lose loved ones, when people are taken away from us all too soon, when we have grief over the loss, that in some ways it can be tempered because we know it's a temporary thing, not a permanent thing. We know that when our loved ones who know Jesus pass away, that we will one day be reunited with them. Not in some float around heaven with wings kind of situation, but, he, but like a here and now situation. We'll be able to hold them, to hug them, to talk with them, to share stories and ask questions like, wow, what was that like for you? See, our grief is tempered. Our grief over this life. All those things that I thought this life would hold for me but didn't. The grief over the goals that I had that never were fulfilled. All those things that I wished to have happened. That grief is tempered. And fourth, believing in the resurrection gives us power to say no to temptation. See, Romans chapter 6, verse 2 says that if we die with Christ, giving ourselves, submitting our life to him, dying to sin, that we no longer live for ourselves. It allows us to live for something bigger. That when the temptations come to do evil, I can say, I just have to hang on a little while longer. Just a little while longer. I can say no for now. Because there will be a day coming when I will no longer be tempted like this. That resurrection power, that power over sin, frees us from needing to say yes to temptation. It gives us a way to say no. See, the power of resurrection isn't just a future thing, but it's the power of resurrection becomes alive in us right now. And how Christ overcame death is in that same way how I can say no to sin. And it allows me that opportunity to endure temptation, to say no to it, and to choose another way. This is what believing in the resurrection does for us. It gives us a hope for the future and allows us to persevere. It tempers our grief. And there's a power at work within us to say no to sin 
and allows Jesus to change me day by day. You know, death could not hold Jesus. <laughs> that song from Don Francisco that we played during the opening, some of you weren't even in here yet, talks about how he broke the bars of sin. <laughs> and now we go free. See, death is defeated. And he is risen. We don't worship a God who is dead. We worship Jesus who is alive. He's very much alive. Very active in our lives right now. And as scripture says, he will come. And he will make all things new. For those of you who believe in Jesus, strengthen your faith with this. Strengthen your faith with the belief of the resurrection. Don't hope. Don't hope in heaven for eternity. Floating around like a disembodied spirit. No. Put your hope that Jesus is going to make all things new. He's going to make all things right. Death is defeated. He is risen. He is risen. <laughs> he is risen. Let's pray. Father, we follow a risen Savior. One who overcomes all enemies, enemies of sin and of death. And Father, we hold on to this hope that one day you will make all things new. You will undo everything that sin and death has done. We put our trust in you. Father, I pray for believers this morning that the resurrection would become our encouragement, the thing that motivates us, the thing that puts our eyes on you. And Father, for those who do not yet know you, May the resurrection become their hope. May it become what stirs them. And now receive this blessing. Heavenly Father, pray that the blessings of the resurrection, the hope that is there for all of us, may stir you and motivate you and be your strength today. In Jesus' name. Amen.